political deadlock to power struggle, leaks and protests, and now a serious threat of bloodshed. You would have thought Iraq has seen it all, right? But it seems there's actually even more to come. Why is Iraq in this latest bout of political turmoil nine months after elections? What lies ahead for the land of two rivers? Hello everyone, I'm Sami Zaydan and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. Now, our guest today is special. She's one of the very few Iraqi women whose expertise covers politics, terrorism and extremism. Russia. Hello, my name is Russia Al-Faidi. I am the deputy Middle East editor of New Lines magazine and previously senior political analyst at New Lines Institute and Foreign Policy Research Institute and George Washington University's program on extremism. I research the social fabric of Iraq and the broader Middle East within the context of all the political and economic turmoil of the past decade or so. Breaking news out of Iraq. Hundreds of supporters of Muqtada al-Sadr stormed the parliament ahead of a vote to choose the new president and prime minister on Thursday. Iraq is going through a lot, isn't it? Supporters of Shia cleric Muqtada al-Sadr, well, they've kind of declared an open-ended sit-in protest inside the Iraqi parliament. Would the withdrawal of Mohammed al-Sudani's nomination for prime minister diffuse this whole crisis? I think it could lead to some kind of opening, at least. But just, you know, observing and analyzing Muqtada al-Sadr's statements, it seems to be more personal. It seems to be him against specific individuals, namely Nuri al-Maliki, ever since the leaking of the audio that one of the conditions he has to actually start or even just consider negotiations or, you know, just talking to the coordination framework, which is the larger Shia bloc that includes the popular mobilization forces and other smaller blocs. He said, just for me to consider even talking to you, I would need the entire CF coordination framework to condemn Nuri Maliki. Why has this become so personal? You know, the audio recordings are a result of the power struggle, of course. But what was really significant about these recordings were the verbal attack against Muqtada Sadr's person, calling him dumb, stupid, calling him and his followers a coward, hinting that the militias themselves, which is the group of militias that are under Muqtada Sadr's control, and the other militias that are under the wider PMF groups, actually accusing them of, at certain points, killing one another. Yeah, I guess name-calling never really helps you build a relationship with another side, does it? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and it was very aggressive name-calling. And we have to keep in mind, we're not just talking here about like an ordinary politician. This is, Muqtada Sadr is not a politician. He's a cleric. He comes from a very well-known, highly established religious family in Iraq. And the insults were different than just calling out a regular politician or someone who is impactful, let's say, in the Iraqi scene. So a case of you cross the line, bro. (laughs) I think you can say that. You know, when you listen to Muqtada, because Muqtada is quite informal in the way he speaks. He speaks in a very rough, you know, local, like Iraqi, Baghdadi dialect. So I think calling him bro would actually work very well in this case. I believe that his followers are also (laughs) genuinely angry. Because, again, Nuri Maliki does not have a lot to his name to be proud of. 
This is not exactly someone who was a successful prime minister for him to brag and for him to attack so aggressively. So I believe a lot of it is that. So let's say if your question was, Hamad Shia Sudani were to step down and decline the nomination, I still believe that Muqtada would demand some kind of apology from the coordination framework, and he would use the opportunity to exclude Nuri Maliki from the political scene. Rasha, maybe we should take a step back first, though, and ask the question, who is Muqtada Sadr? So Muqtada Sadr hails from a very well-known and established Iraqi Shia clergy family. His father was Hamad Sadiq al-Sadr, who was executed by Saddam in the 90s. Muqtada, then being a young man, did not flee the country. He stayed during the Ba'athist rule, during Saddam's rule, but he became really the heir of the Sadr's family in 2003 with the regime change in the beginning of the U.S. invasion. So the U.S. basically disposed Saddam on April 9th, 2003. On April 10th, 2003, just one day later, we see the first signs of the Shia-Shia struggle. That was, I think it's kind of part of Long Law's history now. But Muqtada's followers, and allegedly on orders from Muqtada, who was again then in his 20s, I believe, ordered the assassination or the killing of Abdul Majid al-Khu'i, who was the son of the previous Ayatollah before Sistani, and he had returned to Iraq from London, and he basically ordered his execution or his murder. And Muqtada Sadr was never held responsible or accountable. So from 2003 to 2006, he had Jaysh al-Mahdi, the Mahdi army, and initially the role of Mahdi army was to fight the Americans. Muqtada being in Iraq the whole time didn't feel that Americans were necessary and he called them an occupation. And the Mahdi army attacked U.S. forces in Baghdad in the south very much since 2003, before they took on a more sectarian rhetoric and began, you know, as it's well documented, had a role in killing thousands of Sunnis between 2005 and 2008. Muqtada has, his rhetoric tends to shift. He's called also, he's described as a firebrand oftenly. He speaks in an informal dialect, different than other, let's say, religious men or clergy. He has a different way of expression. He tends to have outbursts, and he's very, very unpredictable. But Muqtada, the last five to six years, he's toned down the sectarian rhetoric. He's openly now discussing or talking about the importance of unity, the importance of keeping the bridges open with Sunnis and Kurds. He does have a very loyal following, as we see. And he has used that following to his benefit. The thing with Muqtada also is I don't think he knows what he wants exactly. So a very well-established figure in not only religion, but also politics, as you mentioned. And talking about politics, he's had a bit to say during the election several months ago. Let's listen in. Mr. Muqtada al-Sadr has adopted the project of a national majority government to save Iraq and fight corruption and the corrupt. So elections were held in October, results officially ratified in December. Why is it taking so long to form a government? Because the way the political system is established in Iraq, it's very, very hard to achieve an outright majority of votes in parliament that are enough to form a unity government and not resort to creating or establishing alliances between different blocs. So a lot of horse trading. Exactly. A lot of compromising. Exactly. And the reason behind this is that there was a belief that Iraq being a Shia majority up to 60 to 65 percent is that if the results, if the parliament was formed and whoever gets the most results gets to form the government, it was formed that way, it would be easier to exclude the other groups like the Sunnis and the Kurds. So to avoid that, which is why they made the threshold quite high, 
And it's very hard to do that outright majority. So alliances have to be formed in this case with either the Sunnis or the Kurds, which creates more of a sense of unity between the different, you know, Iraq's different religious and ethnic factions. It's quite the opposite rather than unity, right? What happened is what's the norm of the past three elections have been the Shiites allying with the Kurds. You know, both these groups were opposed, were, are seen to be Saddam or Ba'ath's opposition. And they end up kind of excluding the Sunnis or not really forming an alliance with the Sunnis. The Sunnis end up kind of being by themselves as seen as the, you know, the pro Ba'athists or the Saddamists, which again, this is not true, but that's the optics of it. This has been the norm in 2005, 2010, then 2014 as well. Then 2018 happened after the liberation of certain territories from ISIS and after the formation of the Popular Mobilization Forces. And we see that this pattern kind of squished a little bit. There was more inclusion of Sunnis even in blocks that were, or political parties that were overwhelmingly Shia. And it wasn't necessarily a sign of things getting better. It was just showed that the Sunnis were extremely defeated and weakened, and also disillusioned by their politicians. And in these cases, Muqtada Sadr in both elections in 2018 and in 2021, in October, last October, Muqtada Sadr always had the higher votes. What happened this time in this election is that his votes were higher than the coordination framework. And there were not called coordination frameworks, sorry, the popular mobilization forces. And they lost a lot of votes due mostly to their decline in public support and popularity because of their aggression and because of human rights violation and various reasons. Now the split is becoming more intense within the Shia camp itself, right? And this is now more in the limelight because of the nomination of Mohammed al-Sudani as prime minister. They were protesting against a rival bloc's nomination of former minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani as a candidate for the premiership. So Sadr is opposing the nomination made by the framework group. Why? Is it that he feels the nominee, Mohammed al-Sudani, is far too close to former Prime Minister Nur al-Maliki? Is that the real reason? That's the official reasoning, uh, that Mohammed al-Sudani still represents sort of the, you know, playbook, let's say, nominee, someone that is still very much part of the closer or inner circle of Hezbollah Dawah, the Dawah party, that are very close to Nur al-Maliki. The Dawah party of the former prime minister, Nur al-Maliki, right? Just to make it simple for listeners. So this is really about concerns in the Sadr camp that this nominee would really represent a continuation of the power of Nur al-Maliki, the former prime minister in the background, right? Yes. Sudani would be a continuity of the status quo, which is something that Muqtada promised his followers and his constituency, basically, that he would change. Why is Nur al-Maliki such a controversial figure in Iraqi politics? Explain that to listeners. So Nur al-Maliki came to power first in 2006, one year after Ibrahim al-Jafari. The irony here is that he was considered to be not sectarian. And he was quite irrelevant. He was quite this obscure figure, you know, kind of like someone who wouldn't cause problems. So this is when the United States back in 2006 was still in Iraq and basically controlling everything. Iran had still had influence, but it was under the surface. So Nuri Maliki was a figure that both the U.S. and Iran could agree upon. And he became prime minister from 2006 to 2010. And during those years, he fought off 
the Sadrist movement at the time they were called Jaish al-Mahdi. He also had, you know, confrontations with the Sunni extremist groups here and there. And he was seen as a successful leader, at least from the outside. That was the optics. And then 2010 happened. He got a second term kind of by maneuvering around the Constitution with, again, the support of the U.S. and the support of Iran, this time for different reasons. Now, the U.S. and Iran were in the early stages of secret talks of the nuclear deal that happened later. And Nuril Maliki was someone that, you know, General Qasem Soleimani back in 2010, he really rooted for. And here's the reasoning why Nuril Maliki in his second term adopted an extremely aggressive and also quite innovative kind of new sectarian approach where he would resort to historic figures, someone that would basically kill off all the Sunnis if he had the opportunity. And it was a populist narrative very new one. It did, you know, gain ground, but it was also extremely toxic for Iraq. And this is just the ideological part. How he was as a prime minister, his performance was awful. This was when Iraq was drenched in corruption. On every single sector you can think of, we're talking on the military, even the interior security, police, special forces, everything in the country was extremely corrupt. It was so corrupt that ISIS managed to, you know, take over one third of the country almost without breaking a sweat. We fast forward to the recent elections. Say recent, but it's been what? How many months? Sadr is one of the most popular politicians in Iraq. His party was the biggest winner in October's election, but he failed to form a majority coalition. So Sadr failed to form a government, and then he called on his MPs to walk out of parliament. So what's happening now? Is this an attempt to gain power through the back door? Is it a coup, as his opponents accuse him of trying to conduct? I believe it's more of the first, because he could not create the majority government or, or the government that he aspired to, you know, through political and through the official means. He decided to rely on his second strength. So he has 73 parliament seats. That was not enough. But his second strength has been the masses his almost cult-like following. And it was clear that he was going to use the streets, meaning protests, in order to form or at least to have influence without having that political pressure of forming the majority government. He's probably aware that he might not be able to, you know, dictate everything this time around with the back door, but at least what he can do is exclude the figures or the names that he's not happy with and he does not want. And if you notice, again, things were relatively calm before the recordings were leaked. I mean, there was a deadlock, but there were negotiations. I mean, there were talks. It might not have gotten so bad, where now there's a threat of escalating violence that might happen. And that our people, especially in Baghdad and the South, they're genuinely worried that this could occur because they do have recent memories with this not too long ago. In 2006 and 2007, you know, the clashes between different Shia groups occurred and between the military. Right, especially now there are counter southern protests, right? So the threat of Shia infighting and violence very real, right? Yes, and now it's, you know, with this infighting, as you mentioned earlier, power struggle is a huge part of it. So it's who is the legitimate representative or Shia power in Iraq. A lot of beef to sort out here between the different sides if they want to get into this kind of thing. You mentioned a moment ago some of the allegations against al-Maliki in terms of sectarianism and corruption. Maybe we should also discuss the allegations against some of the MPs in the Southerist bloc when it comes to corruption, when it comes to sectarian rhetoric. I think even a Southern in his early years had a more of a sectarian rhetoric, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Let's not forget that uh, Jaysh al-Mahdi, you know, Mahdi army, Sadr's armed group in the early years who initially was alleging just to fight off the Americans, they were the ones who started off the whole militia movement. And all of the you know, notorious militias that we have today that are accused of human rights violation that are actually sanctioned by the United States as terrorist groups like Asad al-Haq and Qatad imam Ali, these groups, they all splintered out of the Sadrist movement. So he's basically the, the godfather of all militias and people haven't forgotten that. People still remember very clearly. They still remember his role in all of this, in addition to the sectarian narrative. And the point that you mentioned, I think, is also very, very valid. His, you know, the prime ministers that have been part of the Sadrist movement have been probably the most corrupt in Iraq. Right, so difficult to find an angel on any side here. There's no good side, and this is what's really frustrating. If we talk about the coordination framework, which is basically the militias, let's call them what they are. They, first of all, they objected to the elections when the results first came out. They had standouts in the green zone. They were threatening to completely, you know, eradicate the whole political process in the country because they didn't get high votes. That's one thing. They're accused of assassinations. They carry out attacks against embassies and different facilities. They have extortions, interference in civil liberties. They have so much, you know, negativity, so much dirt on them on one hand. But then also you look at the Sadrists and you see what just some of the stuff that we mentioned. When you talk about it now, it's like the coordination framework are claiming that they at least are aiming to sort of maintain whatever is left of Iraq as a state. And that's just the sad part because the vast majority of Iraqis are not on either side. I genuinely believe that. At least most Iraqis are not happy. Any attempt to try and build that bridge between sides may have taken a fatal hit after the audio leaks. Leaked audio recordings attributed to former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki are trending in Iraq. In this clip, two men allegedly urge Maliki to take power by force and eliminate his rivals. Later, they appear to pledge their allegiance and offer Maliki protection from Iran. There must be bloodshed in order for us to take control. I know the Sadrists very well. I fought them in Basra, Karbala and in Baghdad. They're cowards. I guess, Russia, we always knew there were divisions in Iraqi politics, but this just really deepens the division. It does because I think it really exposed the political class as I like to call them power junkies. They're so addicted to being in charge. They're so addicted to this relevance of being at the front of the political scene that they do anything. Does it reinforce sectarianism as well? You know, just listening to the tone? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, Maliki, just look at it. This is a former prime minister. He's sitting with two young men that are members of a militia that that are saying that they have weapons, that they've killed others, that they carry out attacks on the embassies and on different facilities whenever they want to. He's sitting with them and he's discussing the potential of war. And this war would be, you know, against the Sadrists and against also Sunnis. He's accusing all Sunnis of being Baathist again. I don't know why, but he's brought the UK. He said this is all plot by the United Kingdom, which is very, very 50s. (laughs) Very Middle East in the 50s. I mean, I think that the UK is quite occupied with its own issues now to, you know, stage a coup and put the Sunnis back in power. Right. But we hear that rhetoric from people like Hadi al-Amri, leader of the Badr organization, 
You know, talking about foreign conspiracy, foreign quarters are involved in this to try and push for Shia on Shia internal fighting. Is there any validity to that claim? Absolutely not. No. The intra-Shia fighting was highly predictable the moment that the popular mobilization forces were created. Because behind every militia, you have a certain political figure or a cleric or someone who aspires to be a political figure. And they're going to clash because, A, there's legitimacy in it, to, you know, just this obsession with power that I mentioned, and C, probably the most important. But Russia, what about the role of countries like the US and Iran? They have a lot of influence here, right? They do. But let me just get back to C, which I think is probably the most important. There's so much money involved when you are at the leading role in that, and when you have militias now to protect your interests, the amount of money, we're talking billions and billions of dollars. So all of this. Now, do these two countries, the US and Iran mainly, do they have influence? Absolutely. Is it the same today? The US has not been as influential in the Iraq scene since the withdrawal of 2011, and also since the shift that we've seen in US foreign policy started under Obama, and it sort of continued even in the Trump administration, and it's absolutely continuing today, where Iraq is not a top 50 priority when it comes to US foreign policy. There's all the US wants is that Iraq does not break into civil war, and there's no like reassurgence of ISIS. Now, we might see some concern or interest in the coming weeks if the confrontation escalates. What about Iranian influence, right? Can we say that Iranian influence is at stake here, given the stance, at least the rhetoric, of Maktar al-Sadr? Yes. Iran's case is quite interesting. I don't believe there is any political party that is against Iran in Iraq. Now, we're talking Sunnis, Shiites, Kurds, all different groups. The reasoning behind this is different, but I think there's an acknowledgement that Iran is a neighbor and Iran is not going anywhere. So no political party, regardless of affiliation, can stand up to Iran. You can't say anyone is anti-Iran. Now, it's interesting now to see Shiites using this rhetoric, Muqtada in particular, calling the other groups subordinates to Iran, is basically a talking point. We can't forget that in several occasions, Muqtada, when he felt that he was in danger, Muqtada al-Sadr, he fled to Iran for protection. He is someone that has had strong ties with Iran since his early childhood. This is foundational. It's very solid. So we can't say that he's anti-Iran. However, he claims that he's not happy with the others because they're subordinates, because they follow Iran more than Iraq. This is a key difference. So we, I think it's extremely incorrect to call Muqtada anti-Iran. That's one point. The other point that's really interesting is that if we go back to before the escalation, so General Qani, who was head of the IRGC, the Islamic Revolution Guard Corps, who replaced Qasem Soleimani following his assassination, he was in Baghdad. And that was his first attempt at mediating between different groups. And he left Baghdad, and as a result, the Sadrists took to the streets and took to the parliament. And it just shows us that this is a man who Iran attempt to place Suleimani with, but he lacks the charisma, he lacks the influence that Suleimani did. Well, there are reports now, Russia, that Iran is hosting some of the representatives of both sides to try and play a mediating role. Can Tehran really bring the two sides to an understanding, do you think? Iran has hosted and Iran has been a part of, you know, these talks or attempting to, since the moment the election results were announced. It's quite a role and, you know, the role that it's had, you know, since 2005. And, you know, just today there, I believe I read it somewhere officially, they said, well, Sudani was not our choice. For example, Sudani was not our choice for prime minister. 
Like they can openly say that we have a choice for prime minister in a neighboring country, which is something that you don't really see anywhere else in the world. My point is that it's even become a struggle for Iran because they lack that leadership that used to be in the character of Soleimani and Ghani does not have it. So they're struggling too. So they will absolutely try. I think the U.S. so far has not interfered. It might at some point, but again, U.S. is not playing sides with any. Muqtada is openly anti-American. So who would the U.S. be talking to, basically? America is not really on someone's side. Now, there are reports of America trying to create, you know, back channels with the Sadras in aims to, at the time it was to create, or at least to see where this majority government might lead, because they thought that Muqtada was less aligned to Iran, which is true. Coordination framework are basically Iranian proxies. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Muqtada might not be anti-Iran, but he's not at least openly, you know, doing the bidding for Iran in the country. That's the key difference between the two. I think everybody would agree it is a very complicated situation. And on that point, I'm going to ask you a final question. Not too difficult. Just bring out your crystal ball for us and tell us what's the way out. Is there a way out for Iraq? I really wish I knew. I feel that there might be some skimmerish confrontation. And once that happens, Sistani so far has not really said anything, at least not officially or nothing that I know of. I'm sure, you know, behind the curtains, there are some movements there. So you think in the end, some of the big guns, if we can put it that way, are going to have to get involved and quieten it down? I believe the one thing that all parties have agreed on, except Nurin Maliki, this is also a key point. No one, we can see that from Hadid Amari, he's been trying to create some opening for dialogue because I believe no one wants civil confrontation. They have their own reasons. I believe that there's generally this fear that if there ever is a Shia-Shia confrontation, that there is this fear that the Sunnis or the Kurds might become more powerful than they are. And that's the fear that some sectarian elements in the Iraqi government do fear. So no one really wants confrontation. Nuri Maliki is the only one who feels that there should be some kind of like war, at least between these two. But because the vast majority don't want confrontation, there will be a solution at some point. So it sounds like the solution might be more a salvaging of the political process rather than the country. It's always been just salvaging the status quo. You know, the Sadrists, even when they're talking now, Muqtad has openly said, I want to basically eradicate the political system. We need an overhaul of the system. It's not working anymore. But he doesn't really represent an alternative. We have an idiom in Iraq that's quite funny. It translates to, the madman that I know is better than the sane man that I do not know. So Iraqis don't know what's going to happen in the future. That sums it up. Yep, that sums it up, I guess. The crystal ball is looking very misty. But thank you very much for coming and giving us your take on it. Been a fantastic discussion, Russia. Thank you so much. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. A quick shout out to our team behind the scenes who made this episode possible. Khaled Sultan, our producer, our sound designer, George Elwir, Ayal Malik, our lead engagement producer, Munira Dosari, our assistant engagement producer, our executive producer, of course, the big boss, Omar Saleh. And I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Thank you.